Take your Bible, if you have it, and please turn it to the book of John, chapter 16, verses 25 through 33 are the verses that we will be reading here in just one moment. I often say in, in membership classes we're starting to talk about God, a phrase that I picked up somewhere that I really appreciate and like, and the more uh, I study, the more I learn, the more true I think it is. Uh, and that, san that saying is from Fred Sanders, who quoted it from the ether of theological thought, which is that the gospel is Trinitarian and the Trinity is the gospel. And what we mean by that is that to understand the gospel rightly and even the very nature of the gospel is shaped and formed in the same way that the Trinity is shaped and formed. It is an act of Father, Son, and Spirit to redeem us and to know what the gospel is, is to know the God who is triune. And this is why the early church hung so much importance on the nature and a right understanding of the Trinity. It's not because they simply loved philosophy. It's not because they simply loved deep thought. It's not because they wanted to make unimportant distinctions. But rather it was because they understood it to be at the very heart of our salvation. And they were challenged on this right away, very early on. One of the first challenges we get comes some maybe 50, 60 years after the writing of the book that we have today. Already Marcion came on the scene who is a heretic. From, uh, he was from elsewhere, but he, he made his main uh, prominence known as Rome. And he began to teach that the God of the Old Testament, as he read it, could not be the same God as the God of the New Testament. That Jesus represented a wholly different God. And because of that, he got rid of the Old Testament. And he heavily edited and shortened what we have of the New Testament, keeping only one gospel and ten of Paul's letters. And even those letters, he had to severely edit. Because he could not stand what he found in the Old Testament. So he thought that Jesus was merciful, kind, and compassionate. But that the God of the Old Testament was punitive, sadistic, wrathful, angry, and jealous. And so he was condemned as a heretic. Please understand, though, being condemned as a heretic is not the same thing as just being somebody who holds heretical beliefs. You are condemned as a heretic only when your views get popular enough for people to buy into them. So don't think that this sort of idea is something that is beyond Christians. It is rampant in Christianity today to see God in multiple phases and to see God as multiple persons or to see God as somehow evil and wicked and mean and angry in one sense and good and kind and just in another. We see that the Bible rejects all forms of this. Not just that there are different gods, but importantly today, any sort of differences in God as he exists as three people. If we are not careful, however, while very few of us would fall into something like a full-blown Marcionite heresy, we can very unconsciously fall into something that is semi-Marcionite, where we make distinctions and divisions in the Godhead, one of which we will be attracted to, another of which we will want to distance ourselves from. These things ought not be so. And I pray that John can dissuade us and Jesus can dissuade us from thinking this way this morning. So if you have a Bible, please read with me John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. There we read these words. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. 
The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using fear of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of our God. The first thing I would like to impress upon you from these verses is that we must reject eternal divisions in God. That is, we must reject any notion that there's some sort of distinction or division in the very nature of God that makes the persons of God different in themselves or in how they relate to us. There are no eternal divisions in God. Jesus begins by saying, I've spoken to you in figures of speech. He goes on to say, that I'm not going to be doing that. Soon I will speak to you plainly. And he says what the plainly is about. I will speak to you plainly about the Father. I think it's clear then when Jesus says, I've spoken to you in figures of speech, he means I've spoken to you in figures of speech concerning the Father. And even in that, it is likely concerning his relationship to the Father. And when you hear figures of speech, you shouldn't think of the types of speech that he's been using. It doesn't mean so much that he speaks in terms of parables or in terms of proverbs, but it means that he speaks somewhat obscurely, that he is not being as plain or as direct as he possibly could be. And even though John is by far the most developed gospel in the sense that it has Jesus speaking things about his divinity more clearly than any other gospel does, even here we find that there is a sense of obscurity in what Jesus says. All of Jesus' sayings, whether he's talking about, I do all the things that please my Father, or I, I see my Father working and, and I work, or my Father and I are one. And even the great John 8.58 before Abraham was, I am. All of those are somewhat obscure, and they don't get directly at the heart of the relationship between the Father and the Son. As a matter of fact, if there is one verse that does this more than any other verse, it is a verse that comes at the very beginning of our gospel and is informed not so much by what Jesus says here, but what Jesus says through the Spirit to John, when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is through that understanding of the relationship of the Word or the Son or Jesus as his, as his status as the Son of God is before all time with God, both being with him and with the Father and being God himself, that we can understand all of the other statements of, of Jesus come kind of clear. And so he is being somewhat obscure in how he is saying, but he is saying that there will be a time when that is no longer the case. That time is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because even in John 16, 13, we read that when the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will take my words, and he will give them to you. If the Spirit speaks clearly to John at the beginning, it's because Jesus is now speaking plainly to him. He is not speaking in figures of speech. So the Spirit will come, and he will make known clearly who the Father is. And Jesus says, in that day, when that happens, you will speak, and you will pray, and you will ask in my name. Now again, we need to kind of go back and think through what it means to ask in his name. It can't be possibly some sort of magical incantation that you can ask for whatever junk you want in the world, and so long as you fix to the end of that, in Jesus' name, Jesus is bound and determined to give you what you want. It's not like the Father is up in heaven and saying, I'm not going to do that. Oh, he said in Jesus' name. Now I'm bound. I've got to do it. That's not what it means. Given the entire corpus of John 14, 13 even, all the way through what we've read through chapter 16, it clearly has meaning to love Jesus. To speak in Jesus' name mean, means that you love him, that you abide in him. And that in loving and abiding in him, you keep his commandments. You are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And it makes perfectly good sense why the Father would then answer the desires of your heart when you bring them to him. So long as you ask them like Jesus would ask them, connected to him, in his name, abiding in him, growing in him, being more like him. As you grow more like Christ, you ask for things more like Christ would ask. As you ask for things more like Christ would ask, the Father is always happy to answer the prayers of his Son. So it makes really good sense. But Jesus doesn't stop there for long. He has something that he needs to clarify. He says, I do not say to you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now what he means by that is not the old man's hearing is going, so you speak from a distance, I can hear you, but I'm going to have to turn to him and speak kind of loud. Right? It's not that his hearing is going, but what he means is you shouldn't think that the Father is reluctant to answer you. I'm not going to take your requests on your behalf to the Father as though you bring them to me and the father is up there saying, absolutely, I don't care about these blokes. I don't care what they have to say. I don't, I don't, why should I listen to them? And yet Jesus is there saying, dad, listen, listen. These are good folks. I redeemed them. They're mine. They're yours. You really should give them what they want. Jesus isn't up there manipulating the father, changing the will of the father, asking for the father for things that he doesn't want to give. He's not up there pleading with the father on your behalf. We must avoid this type of thinking about how Jesus mediates for us. He stands as a mediator because he is the God-man. And in his sacrifice and laying down his life, he provides a bridge for us between God and us. That is, his death is our death, and we are then free to approach God as our Father. That is how he mediates for us. He does not mediate in terms of prayer for us. That is, that we cannot go directly to the Father. Those who think this way end up thinking that there is something of a, of a division in God. This sort of eternal division where the Father is the one who carries around the anger and the wrath and the jealousy and the justness 
and the uprightness of the God of the Old Testament, but Jesus is somehow the merciful one, the loving one, the forgiving one, the kind one. So he has sympathy and compassion to you, and he hears your prayer, but the Father doesn't really care and only cares so long as Jesus is there nagging him to make you care or to make him care. The Father is not just some angry, wrathful, spiteful, jealous God who needs to be prodded by his Son to see things the Son's way. And we are badly misunderstanding the nature of the Father and of the Son if we consider that that is ever the case. Jesus is trying to clarify that immediately. The Father wants to do things for your good and for your joy just as much as the Son does. And he gives us a very clear reason why. Because the Father loves you. The Father does not have to be coerced into loving you. The Father doesn't have his heart changed towards you by Jesus. But the Father loves you. So we cannot be the kind of people that think the Son is a manifestation of the love of God while the Father is something of the upholder of law, justice, wrath, and vengeance. This is not just simply wrong. It damages exactly and how we think about salvation. But we also can't think that the Father loves us salvifically outside of the Son. Because it says very clearly, the Father loves you. Why? Because you have loved me. The fact that God loves you without having to meet a condition is what we call the unconditional love of God. And it means unconditional in the fact that you don't have to have certain boxes checked off in your life in order to have God's love fall on you. You don't have to be born to the right family. You don't have to think the right thoughts. You don't have to do the right deeds. But God loves you simply because you are born and you exist. Therefore, it is unconditional. I guess that would make being born and existing one of those conditions. But nevertheless, generally speaking, unconditional. This is perhaps the only theological truth that Americans hold to. You ask anyone on the street, does God love you? Pew Research Council did a, did a poll in 2018 and asked the question, does God love all people regardless of their faults? 97% of those who believe in the God of the Bible said yes. I'm just giving you that. as It's not even really a fact because who knows what they mean by regardless of their faults and does God love all people and what kind of God of the Bible they believe in. Who knows what any of that means? But I'm sure that that's pretty close to a number. If you went around asking people, does God love you? If people believe in God, they believe that he loves them. The question becomes, does God love you unconditionally? Yes. And no. It's clear here that Jesus doesn't really think so. He says that the Father loves you because... You love the Son because you love Jesus, because you love me. And someone might retort, well, doesn't God love everyone? Isn't that something the Bible upholds? And again, the answer to that is something along the lines of yes. So as I've quoted many times, Matthew 5, 45 is important. As Jesus said, you are not to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but you are to love your enemy and pray for them. And though... The reason why is, he says, this is the very thing that the Father in heaven does. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So 
the Father in his providential care over the world does very providential things over everybody. When the dam in Edenville and the dam in Sanford broke and all that water rushed down into both Midland and Sanford and other things further downstream, you will have people in houses directly next to one another who are filled with rabidly atheist, God-hating, immoral people and the most kind and loving Christians you've ever seen in your life and both had six feet of water in their basement. And yet the next day when the sun came up and it was a beautiful day, the sun fell on both. He says, this is just the way that God works. It is a way to show that he loves them. His love is seen in providing the same events for all in the patterns that he has set over creation. But that doesn't mean that he loves everybody the same way. And it certainly doesn't mean that his love in salvation is over all people. As a matter of fact, the fact that his love is shown in creation is one of the ways that his condemnation of people who reject them, reject his goodness and reject his kindness and reject his gift of the Son, is increased. Romans 2, 4 through 5 says this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He says, the love of God is there. His kindness and his mercy is given to you day after day after day. And your rejection of it just means that the storage of wrath in your account is going up and up and up. Far from his love bringing you into salvation, for many people, his love is increasing the wrath that he has against them as they continue to reject him. Even so, for us, we know the Father loves us because we love the Son. The Father's love is supremely seen by his love for the Son. And if we can't think that Jesus loves us and the Father needs his mediation to be, be turned towards you in compassion and in sympathy, we also cannot think that the Father loves us regardless of what we think of the Son. Jesus clearly didn't countenance with such thinking. We've seen this in John. He says, unless you believe in me, you're condemned already. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. If Jesus won't countenance that, why would we think that the Father would? We cannot think that the Son loves and the Father is reluctant to do so. But nor can we think that the Father loves you fully and wholly outside of your honoring the Son. But even while that's true, we must also resist the thought that we love and we cause God then to love us. As John would say, this is precisely backwards. Because in 1 John, he says, we love him because he first loved us. Rather, what Jesus is doing here, I think, is giving the condition of our love as proof that God's love is upon us. How do you know if God's love is upon you? If his salvific love has been given to you, you love Jesus. And this is the entire reason why Jesus has come. He has come to reconcile us to God that we might rightly know the love of God through Jesus Christ, his Son, so that we might live as vines, abiding in the Son, loving him and doing what he has commanded, and so that we would pray rightly. Throughout all of these chapters, prayer has been emphasized. 
prayer is so important because it is the clearest and the most obvious way that our reconciliation to God and our relationship to God is demonstrated and made manifest to us in our lives. Do you want to know if you have a strong and abiding relationship with the Father? Look to your prayer life. Look to the things that you pray for. Are they the things that Jesus prays for? The fact that we can address God as Father means that we have been reconciled to him. But what's more, the strength of that reconciliation in our faith and in our own selves is made marked by the manner and the nature of our prayer to him. This is why Jesus reinforces his mission here at the end of these verses. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. In dying and rising again, he has accomplished what he has come to do. He has given us reconciliation, and that reconciliation is seen best in the fact that we pray to him as Father. That we are no longer praying to a God who is out there, but one who knows us intimately. We are not praying to somebody who stands as deity over us, but who treats us as children. He allows us, the work of Jesus allows us to speak of God as Father by removing our sins so the Father might respond to us as children in our prayer. This is what Jesus has come to do. Friends, you cannot be tempted, you might be tempted, but you shouldn't be tempted to think that the work of the cross or in Jesus reconciling us to the Father, creates some sort of eternal distinctions between the Father and the Son in God. The Father isn't wrathful and angry and bitter and jealous while the Son is merciful and loving and kind and gracious. But the Father, the Father loves and Jesus upholds justice. The Father is also not loving beyond who Jesus is. The Father will not overlook hatred or mistreatment or slander against the Son, because to deny the Son is to deny God. Friends, we must reject eternal divisions in God, but secondly, we must reject temporary divisions in God as well. The disciples respond to him somewhat unusually. They say, ah, we know now you're speaking plainly, although given what Jesus just said, it's unclear how that was any more plain than anything that Jesus has ever said before. And he says this, now we know that you know all things and do not need to question anyone to question you. Now, I don't know if that sounds weird to you, but that sounds precisely backwards because the reason why I go to Christ for wisdom, the reason why I go to Christ with questions is precisely because I don't know stuff and he does. I don't know how to respond to this person. I don't know how to, how to lead this person this way. I don't know what counsel to give to this person. I don't know what kind of toothbrush to buy. I don't know a number of different things. And because I'm ignorant of so much and I lack so much wisdom and I know that Jesus knows everything, that's precisely the reason why I go to him. So it's very strange that they come to him and they say, well, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. To ask of you is another way of putting that. Now, I have a tentative suggestion, which is just a suggestion for the text to make this all work. I think why they say he's speaking plainly to them now is because this issue of asking in Jesus' name is a new one for them. Nowhere else in John's gospel until after the foot washing, which happens within a handful of hours of this, 
has Jesus ever mentioned to them in the Gospel of John, you will ask in my name. This is new language, it's new terminology. They don't know what to do with it, and they don't even know what it means. My assumption is that they had a problem precisely along what Jesus just got done clarifying. Is asking in your name mean that the Father doesn't really want to give us what we're asking for, but instead we're supposed to ask you so that you can make it happen with God because God is still angry with us for something or God doesn't want to give us this and, and you're going to be the sort of prayer mediator for us to go before the Father and to ask him for what we should actually want. And so I think that when Jesus clarifies that that's not what I mean by asking in my name, they say, oh, well now you're not speaking around stuff. That was precisely what our question was. And it makes sense that they would say, you know everything and you don't need anyone to question you. Because what they mean by that is, we didn't even get to utter that question yet. It didn't even get to the tip of our tongue. We, we didn't even have to say it and already you're addressing it. It was a miraculous bit of intervention that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so they say, ah, now we know. We don't even need to question you. We don't need to come before you with questions because you know what we're going to ask before we even ask it. And therefore, you don't need anyone to question. You just tell us what we need. Now we know and we believe that you have come from God. I say, this is enough proof for us. We've got it. We're good now. Now Jesus' response is hard. Harsh, I think. He says, do you now believe? And the man raised people from the dead. He has done this to other people before. It's kind of a hallmark of Jesus to know the thoughts and the minds of those who are around and the kind of questions that they might ask. What I think the issue is, is this sense of self-relial and self-congratulations that is found in the disciples' words here. Man, we figured it out. Now with this, we can put everything together. We kind of know what's going on here now. Do the disciples really think that having this happen to them, although perhaps it's happened to others before, but maybe never to the disciples, do the disciples think that having this happen to them now is able to make their faith secure? As though now they're clever enough to get it. Now they're smart enough to kind of put everything together. Friends, I would warn you, to not ever let such thoughts creep into your head. If you ever understand anything about Jesus, if you ever understand anything about his, his goals, about his coming, about his sacrifice, if you ever understand anything about him and why he is the Christ, do not ever think that it's because you are wiser or more clever or more knowledgeable or more studious or more serious or more moral than other people. Because friends, that's a dead end. And it will lead to your faith being crushed because you're not any of those things. You're just not. The only reason why they believe is simply because Christ has revealed himself to them. It is simply by Christ's good and gracious being that they know anything about him. Even as we have sung, he is our sure and steady anchor. Not our understanding, not our abilities. Jesus had just finished making it clear that they're his disciples because he called them. He calls out to his sheep and his sheep come to him. He holds them in his hands. He is the one who provides for them. Your response, as faithful as it might be and as faithful as I hope it is, is based on absolutely nothing in you. It is all there because of the grace of God working in your life. It is your faith, but your faith is there because of what God has done in you. 
For indeed, these disciples will fall away. They will scatter when the shepherd is struck. They are leaning on their own understanding, and they don't understand him closer than a social distance of 10 feet where they can look at him being crucified. They will scatter. Some will stay far away. Some will indeed be near, but none will go and die with Jesus. None of them will be so closely associated with Jesus that everyone will look at him and say, hey, he's one of them. He believes just as Jesus believes. Maybe not that he's God, but he believes that Jesus is God, and that's blasphemy too. Let's ring him up. None of them are seen as enemies of the states and blasphemers like Jesus is. C.H. Dodd rightly says this. It is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundational members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget, that they would scatter, and then they would build Christ's church, not because they were cohesive, not because they knew Jesus through their own wisdom and their own might, but only because Christ has called them to do that and equipped them to do that. Jesus says, you will leave me alone, but I am not alone. Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34 have a very famous saying of Jesus on the cross, which is repeated in those two Gospels and those two Gospels alone. Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a quotation from the first line of Psalm 22. And unless we think that Jesus was somehow play-acting, that when he called out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? He didn't really feel forsaken, but instead was just quoting scripture to quote scripture. Jesus truly thought that God had forsaken him. And what this is often seen as is something of Jesus as the Son of God, proclaiming that the Father has eternally, well not eternally, but at that moment forsaken him. What is typically meant by this is that the Father pours out his wrath on the Son, carrying out, or crying out, that, or excuse me, that Son is crying out that the Father has left him because God the Father is pouring out his wrath on his Son and thereby forsaking him. In doing so, he must, in some sense, leave the Son to the torments of sin and death while at the same time being separated from them on himself. And that, it is primarily the Father who has wrath and anger and who seeks justice. And it is primarily the Son who is passive and absorbs wrath and absorbs anger. This seems to be directly contradicted by what Jesus says here. It is obviously a reference to his crucifixion and his death because that is when the disciples scatter. That is when they leave him. They don't leave him after the resurrection. They leave him when he is being crucified. They leave him when he is going through trial. They leave him when he is going to be most alone on the cross. But that is precisely when Jesus says, the Father does not leave me. The Father is with me. 
The Father is always with the Son. He never leaves him, nor will he ever forsake him. The question then becomes, what does Jesus mean when he says that God has forsaken him? He means precisely that. He doesn't say, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, Jesus on the cross as a man probably has the will but obviously lacks the strength as any man would to pull himself down off that cross. He, he cannot save himself. Yet that was never really the issue. The issue was always, would God save him? And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not really asking the question why. No one thinks that because Jesus very well knows what the answer is. That's part of his whole mission. He's already said that up in verse 28. This is my mission. I've come to take on the sins of the world. He knows very well why the question is that he is being forsaken by God. And he is being forsaken by God because God refuses to pull him off the cross. That God, Son, Father, and Spirit all do not step in to remove him off that cross. Jesus can't do it in his humanity. But make no doubt about it, the Son could very easily do this in his divinity. He can call down legions of angels. He could roll back the heavens as a scroll. He could destroy that piece of wood quicker than you can pull a splinter out of your toe. He has no problem destroying every sinner in his sight. He could easily do all of this, and yet he refuses to do so. They mock him. They throw ridicules and insults at him, and he refuses to do so. This is precisely what Philippians 2.6 means when it says that Christ Jesus, who exists in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. That is, when he hung on the cross for us and our redemption, he was not going to use God's power to remove himself from the cross, but instead he, forced, he was forsaken by God. God left him there to feel the weight of our sin and the weight of our death. That is what it means for him to be forsaken. So while the divine nature is inseparably connected to that human nature in the person of Jesus, even so, the divine nature does not step in to keep the personal, to keep the human nature of Jesus from feeling the fullness of death. Jesus does not use his divine sonship to remove himself from the cross. The Father will not rebuke the nails. He will not rebuke the evil men in charge or send legions of angels the way of his Son. The Spirit will not turn the hearts of his executioners to let him be taken down. They will all leave the human man, Jesus, who is still inseparably connected to God through the Incarnation. They will all leave him to die. But in all of this, you must never think that the Father leaves the Son. You must never think that for your redemption, somehow the Father has separated himself, has thought of his Son as evil or wicked or nasty. It can't happen eternally, and it can't happen for a fraction of a second. There can never be a break, whether temporary or not, in the nature of the Trinity, simply so that we can gain salvation. 
God is not so torn that we can be placed back together. Not only is such impossible, but it ruins our salvation. If the Father's love for His Son can be ruined and soiled by our sin, even for a minute, what foundation do you think you have for thinking that His love for us will continue even as we sin? If our sin is enough to rip the love of the Father from the Son, why would the Father love you for a second while you sin? If our sin can splinter the unique oneness of God, how in the world could we ever be made one with Him? If God's love for Himself is broken for our sin, how do we think that we can escape our own brokenness even through this crucifixion of Christ? If we think that God must be ripped asunder in order to make us one in His image, what part of that God do we image? The part that is merciful and kind and forgiving and laying down His life? Or the one who insists on justice and wrath and anger at sin, righteously, anger all the same? Not only that, but any of these sort of temporary distinctions in the nature of God always, always have to become larger, precisely because this is where God is seen most clearly. This is where his nature is on the fullest display. If the true character of God means that there is a division between father and son, we are not saved. Is the father truly the only one who pours out his wrath against the son? Does the son not hate sin? Is the Father the only one in the Godhead who cares about punishment, wrath, justice, vengeance, and his own glory? Is the Son really the only one who places himself because he is places himself under wrath because he is merciful, kind, and loving? If this is so on the cross, why does it stop being so? If God the Father for a second becomes unloving and uncaring and unkind, and Jesus as the Son of God for one second, can care little about sin and its punishment and wrath, why would they ever be the same again? The problem is that these temporary restrictions cannot stay temporary for long. The Father will have to become full of wrath and only wrath, and the Son will become nothing but a sheep. And he will never return in anger and in vengeance, bearing a sword and slaying those who would stand against him. And friends, while such thoughts are likely not formed fully in your head, and certainly what I've just said, you would likely want to be far from you, you need to do everything you can to banish them completely. Because it is the ruination of your salvation. There is no break, no division, either eternally or temporally in God. The Father will always love the Son, has always loved Him, and will always love Him. This is the surest sign of our salvation, by the way. This is where our salvation is won. Not just in the fact that God loves us, but in the fact that God loves Himself. The Gospel is nothing more than this, that our sin and our trying to be like God, by saying what God must be like, by creating our own goals, our own telos, and our own rules, by reformulating God in our own image, is not powerful enough to destroy God himself. But rather, 
that God will show his love eternally decreed over his people. That love cannot be broken, either in himself or in us. Because he will send his son to take on human flesh, to die on the cross through his humanity, to secure for us salvation. That God's love, not only for his son, but for the people that he has eternally decreed will be his. That he has elected from before the foundation of the world, that he wrote in the Lamb's book of life, will indeed be his. And that sin is never powerful enough to rip his love off of them. All of this is so that we might be reconciled to this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who love you, who care for you, and hate sin, and love justice, and are filled with wrath for those who refuse to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. This gospel is the good news that the love of God, displayed supremely in Jesus Christ, is triumphant over the evil of our sin and the world, and that those who trust in this God will never be put to shame and will share an eternal life with him. So, Jesus does what he has to do. He says, I have spoken these things to give you peace. Clearly, again, this is not a peace with the world. He says, there will be tribulation in the world. The peace that he has come to give us is not a peace that the world understands or knows. It is a peace with God. The tribulation is clear and obvious. Mankind is filled with hatred. And, given the opportunity outside of God's good, common grace, will murder, loot, and destroy for the pettiest of reasons. Men will strike out against other men because other men show something of the image of God that they don't have and they hate them for it. Men will strike out against other men because of a warped sense of law and justice. Men will strike out against other men because they know nothing of who God truly is or what is truly good for them. But Jesus has come to give us peace with God, whose love is eternal, is everlasting, is concrete, is gracious and victorious over our sin and over the world. So we need not fear man. We don't have to fear his hate. We don't have to fear our own humility. You don't have to fear being wrong because you're not right. You don't have to fear repentance because his love is over you. Nor do you have to fear death because the world can do nothing to you outside of God's gracious will. The love of God which is unbreakable and unshakable has conquered the world and it has conquered it for you. So take heart, church. The love of God is undaunted by the world's schemes. Take up your cross. Love Jesus. Love one another. Preach the gospel. Be reconciled to God. Stand against hatred and injustice and violence. For the world as it is will come to an end. Because Christ has conquered it. For he is the very Son of God. And by Father, Son, and Spirit there is nothing greater. So we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Even so, let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your love. Let it forever be over us, conforming us and leading us in right paths. Let your love for us ever be found in the cross of Jesus, so that we may be sure that as certain as that cross has happened, 
as certain as his death and resurrection have occurred, so certain is your love for us. Let that provide humility for us, love for one another, and a love for you. May this be so today and forevermore, for your glory and our good. Amen.